I start at page 164. Allah will abolish interest and will cause charity to increase. And Allah loves not anyone who is a confirmed disbeliever and an arch sinner. The Holy Quran, chapter 2, verse 266. Nay, but you honor not the orphan, and you urge not one another to feed the poor, and you devour the heritage of the poor, and you love wealth with extreme love. The Holy Quran, chapter 89, verse 18 to 21. Chapter 4 Economic Peace Economic Philosophies of Capitalism, Communism, and Islam The Islamic economic order neither belongs to capitalism nor to scientific socialism. The economic philosophy of Islam is scientific without being mechanical. It is disciplined without being over-restrictive. It allows private possession and private enterprise, but does not promote greed and the amassing of wealth in a few hands whereby a large section of society turns into destitute, serfs enslaved to a cruel and relentless system of exploitation. There are three fundamental differences in the economic philosophies of capitalism, communism, and Islam. Capitalism In capitalism, Capital is rewarded with interest. It is intrinsically accepted in principle that capital has a right to grow. Interest plays the central motive force for the amassing of capital, which is then channeled as energy to set and keep the assembly line of production in motion. In short, interest acts as an incentive for keeping capital in circulation. Scientific Socialism in scientific socialism, although there is no incentive of interest to cycle and recycle capital into a productive mechanism, the state monopolizes capital, so there is no need for motivation. In free private enterprise, whether one pays or does not have to pay interest, one's sense of personal ownership is sufficient to create an urge that one's capital should grow at the fastest possible rate. If one has to pay interest on board money, the rate of interest acts as a benchmark. It works like a window through which one can monitor the comparative growth or diminution of capital. In the socialist economic system, however, there is neither this urge because those who employ capital do not own it, nor is there any means of comparison whereby one can judge whether the rate of growth is economically sufficient or not. In socialist scientific order, the forcible possession of the entire state's capital by the state itself renders the system of interest totally irrelevant and meaningless. The snag is that when you are not under any pressure to earn more than the interest you may have to pay, you lose all incentives and any sense of responsibility. If the entire capital in circulation in a communist state could, for instance, be valued from the point of view of how much interest it could earn had it been deposited in a bank. That would present us with one side of the picture. The second side of the picture could be conceived by assessing the economy on a profit and loss basis. Of course, it would present many complications such as assessing wages, etc. 
But if financial experts put their heads to it, such hurdles may be overcome. A comparison of these two would present very interesting possibilities. It is more than likely that the real culprits for the decline of standards of living could precisely be pinpointed in this way. Even without such a gigantic exercise, it is not difficult at all for one to determine the causes of such decline. I believe that because the state becomes the capitalist, it is deprived of a monitoring system to warn it of failures, wastage, and blunders regarding the way it handles the state's capital because it has no financial obligations to fulfill and can employ capital without accountability. Such a situation is rife with inherent dangers, lack of personal interest, and a warning system of the profit or loss arising from the employment of capital works havoc with the input-output ratio. The quantum of waste goes on increasing. Again, there is no check placed on the policy of channeling capital. For instance, there is no mirror for the socialist governments to judge the real rate of economic growth in comparison to the free market economies of the outside world. An added problem is that communist states require much larger expenditure on defense, surveillance, and law enforcing agencies within the country. Other things being equal, this requires a disproportionate level of expenditure on defense and the maintenance of law and order. These and other small factors take a heavy toll on the economy. The ultimate collapse of the economy can be delayed, of course, but cannot be averted altogether. Islamic concept. While communism provides no incentive for direct dedicated involvement in the production of wealth, despite banishing interest, Islam provides the incentive. Islam does away with the system of usury and interest without sharing the specific problems of the communist world. In the absence of interest dragging capital along non-productive channels, Islam checks idle capital. This check is a form of tax known as zakat, which is levied not on income or profit but on the capital itself. The contrast is very clear. In capitalist societies, Capital is amassed in the hands of a few out of greed to increase capital through the accumulation of interest and is recycled into the economy with the set task of yielding a profit greater than the prevailing rate of interest. Failing this, the economy is bound to go into recession. In Islam, out of fear that any idle capital would be gradually eroded away through the imposition of zakat, anyone with surplus savings would have to employ it in earning profits to offset the effect of zakat. According to Islam, the answer to the economic problems of the world lies neither in the scientific socialism nor capitalism. It is impossible to elaborate on this subject here, but we must have a topical view of the economic imbalance created by capitalism to draw some lessons for the future. Four Characteristics of a Capitalist Society The signposts for determining that such an imbalance has arisen in a society are very clearly stated in the following verses of the Holy Quran. Kalla, bala tukrimun al-yatim 
ولا تحاضون على طعام المسكين وتاكلون التراث اكلا لما وتحبون المال حبا جما nay but you honor not the orphan and you urge not one another to feed the poor and you devour the heritage of the other people holy and you love wealth with exceeding love briefly these features are one dishonorable treatment of orphans two feeding of the poor is not promoted three usurpation of the heritage of others four endless amassing of wealth capitalism ultimately leads to destruction without endorsing the philosophy of scientific socialism islam rejects some aspects of capitalism because alhaq mutakafu hatta zurtumul maqabir kalla sawfa ta'lamun mutual rivalry in seeking worldly increase diverts you from god till you reach the graves nay you will soon come to know the truth the changing economic order exploitation of poorer citizens by interest based capitalism which gives birth to socialist rebellion seems to be relegated to history but a deeper study would reveal that it is only a change of guise already the world as a whole has been split into the haves and have nots thanks mainly to the exploitation by the advanced capitalist countries and to this situation the momentous return to capitalism by the repentant eastern bloc one shudders to visualize how much more blood would be sucked from the already enfeebled and anemic nations of the third world but it would seem that the vampires of capitalism must draw more blood it is clear that the age of confrontation between the two major opposing economic philosophies of capitalism and scientific socialism is over the economic systems based on marxism leninism have bowed out of the stage of human affairs on the other hand the so-called free economy of the west seems to be exultant over its apparent victory barring china the eastern bloc countries are still struggling to mitigate the miseries of the multitudes of have-nots in their respective countries in the wake of their newfound freedom The economic gap between the east and west is not as big as that between the north and south. The first world countries of the north are divided on another plane from the third world countries of Africa and South America. Though in terms of economic disparity, the gap between North and South America is certainly hurtful. It is nowhere near the gap between Europe and Africa. Africa, so close in proximity to Europe, is in terms of economic disparity the farthest apart from europe the sense of security that was once enjoyed by the weaker countries of the world because of the rivalries between the superpowers and any chance of the poorer nations benefiting from the thawing of the cold war will fast fade out there is going to be much greater and more earnest competition between the usa russia and the rest of europe to win monopolize and secure the markets of the third world countries japan will no longer be the only serious rival to america a new europe emerging out of the rapid growth of the european community 
and the prospective participation of Eastern Europe in a larger common market will pose a far more formidable competition to America than the rival states of Europe. The teeming millions of East Europe and Russia are looking forward to and stand in dire need of raising their living standards. Merely the rehabilitation of a closed market would not be sufficient to meet this tall order, which is likely to grow taller with the passage of time. The dire necessity of external markets to support the rising living standards in East Europe and Russia may be met by the EC, America, and Japan. It offers little hope for the third world countries, a bleak picture indeed for the third world, much more so for the less fortunate people of Africa. The politicians of the economically and politically advanced nations of the world are far more concerned by the capitalist economic revolution taking place in the Far East Japan, South Korea, Formosa, Hong Kong, and Singapore. It seems that the distance between the Far East and the West is being bridged over the heads of many less fortunate Asian countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, Cambodia, Thailand, Burma, Bangladesh, India, Sri Lanka, and Pakistan. It is also possible that to meet the growing challenge from the gigantic economy of Japan and to put a check on its rapidly expanding economy, other Far Eastern countries would no longer remain beneficiaries of American know-how and capital. On the other hand, it is also possible that America may lean even more on its Far Eastern allies to meet new combined challenges from Japan and an economically much bigger and united Europe. This augurs ill for the future of mankind and may ultimately shatter the prospects for peace on a completely different plane than the ideological rivalries between capitalism and communism. It is too early to predict how the changes in Eastern Europe and Russia may influence the economic balance of the world and whether their return to capitalism may be complete or partial, or slow or rapid. Whatever happens, one thing is certain that these changes will further adversely influence the economies of the third world. Such a state of affairs cannot last indefinitely. Already, the world is heading towards a global catastrophe. Islam has a word of advice for the presently exultant capitalist countries built on a hollow foundation of usury and interest. They are ultimately bound to tumble down and shatter to pieces. The so-called recent victory by capitalism over socialism will only provide transient peace. Capitalist philosophies by themselves will give birth to powerful demons which will rapidly grow to gigantic size in the absence of rivalries from socialism. The volcano of capitalism will finally erupt with such force that the whole world will shake, quick, and convulse. Islamic Economic System As with the social system advocated by Islam, the Islamic economic system commences with the premise that all that is in the heavens and the earth has been created by God, who has bestowed man various provisions on trust. As a trustee, man will be held accountable for the discharge of this trust. The possession or absence of wealth is a means of trial so that in both abundance and adversity, 
those who are mindful of their accountability may be distinguished from those who resort to callousness and scant attention to the sufferings of the rest of mankind. The Holy Quran repeatedly reminds us, وَلِلَّهِ مُنْكُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَاللَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٌ To Allah belongs the kingdom of the heavens and the earth, and Allah has power over all things. Then it teaches that if everything has been created by God for all, some of it should be shared amongst men. أَمْ لَهُمْ نَصِيبٌ مِّنَ الْمُلْكِ فَإِذًا لَا يُؤْتُونَ النَّاسَ نَقِيرًا Have they a share in the kingdom? Then would they not give men even so much as the little hollow in the back of a dead stone? وَاللَّهُ فَضَّلَ بَعْضَكُمْ عَلَى بَعْضٍ فِي الرِّزْقِ فَمَا الَّذِينَ فُضِّلُوا بِرَادِّ رِزْقِهِمْ عَلَى مَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُهُمْ فَهُمْ فِيهِ سَوَاءٌ أَفَبِنِعْمَةِ اللَّهِ يَجْحَدُونَ Allah has favored some of you above others in worldly gifts. But those more favored will not restore any part of their worldly gift to those under their control, so that they may be equal sharers in them. Will they then deny the favor of Allah? Man's responsibility is to discharge this trust honestly and equitably. إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُكُمْ أَن تُؤَدُّ الْأَمَانَاتِ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِهَا وَإِذَا حَكَمْتُمْ بَيْنَ النَّاسِ أَن تَحْكُمُوا بِالْعَلِي إِنَّ اللَّهَ نِعِمَّا يَعِذُكُمْ بِهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ سَمِيعًا بَصِيرًا Verily, Allah commands you to give over the trust to those entitled to them, and that, when you judge between men, you judge with justice. Surely, excellent is that with which Allah admonishes you. Allah is all-hearing. All seeing. The fact that material wealth is a source of trial is expressed in the Holy Quran as follows. Innama amwalukum wa awladukum fitna, wallahu indahu ajrun azim. Verily, your wealth and your children are a trial, but with Allah is an immense reward. An important concept of possession under Islam is that. Certain resources are taken out of individual ownership and placed in the hands of mankind as a whole. Thus, mineral resources and the produce of seas and oceans is not the exclusive property of any individual or group of people. Zakat Zakat is one of the five pillars of Islam, the others being the affirmation that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his messenger prayers fasting during the month of ramadan and pilgrimage to the house of allah in mecca for instance the holy quran commands observe prayer and pay the zakat and obey the messenger that you may be shown mercy the Arabic word zakat literally means to purify something and in the context of a mandatory levy would mean that the residual wealth after the deduction of zakat had rendered it pure and lawful for the believers. It is normally levied at 2.5% on disposable assets above specific thresholds which have remained in the hands of owners beyond one year. Although 
much has been said about the rate or percentage of this tax. We find no reference to any fixed percentage in the Holy Quran. In this respect, I beg to differ with the dogmatic view of medieval scholars. I believe that the question of percentage remains flexible and should be determined according to the state of the economy in a particular country. Zakat being a specific levy imposed upon capital beyond certain thresholds, it can only be utilized for certain categories of expenditure. These have been spelled out in the following verse of the Holy Quran. إنما الصدقات للفقراء والمساكين والعاملين عليها والمؤلفة قلوبهم وفي الرقاب والغارمين وفي سبيل الله وابن السبيل فريضة من الله والله عليم حكيم Arms are only for the poor and the needy and for those employed in connection with their collection and distribution and for those whose hearts are to be comforted and for the freeing of slaves, and for those burdened with debt, and for those striving in the cause of Allah, and for the wayfarers. This is an ordinance from Allah. Allah is all-knowing, wise. The treasury is charged with the administration of this ordinance. In the early history of Islam, Hadrat Abu Bakr anhu and Umar anhu, the first two caliphs, were renowned for personally ensuring the speedy disbursement of arms in what became known as the first welfare state. This system had been at work with great success for centuries during the Abbasid period. As has already been explained, the motive force of interest is replaced by the deriving force of zakat. When we examine this system in operation, Many differences between the Islamic economic order and other economic systems come to light. The features of a completely different economy begin to emerge. No amount of idle money, irrespective of it being large or small, can survive for long without multiplying faster than the rate at which it is taxed. That is precisely how Zakat propels the economy in a truly Islamic state. Imagine a situation where an individual with a small amount of capital is unable to directly participate in trade and there are no banks to credit him with interest on his deposit. Yet, if the deposit be sufficiently large to be taxable by zakat, there are revenue collectors who knock at his door each year for a percentage of his capital. Zakat is not beyond a prescribed threshold. Such individuals have only two alternatives either to personally employ their money profitably or to pool their resources to establish small or large enterprises. This will promote joint ventures, partnerships, the forming of small companies or public shareholding in larger companies on a strict profit and loss basis. Such companies will owe nothing to any financial institution to which they have to repay debts with interest. Hypothetically, when you compare the lot of such companies with that of their counterparts in capitalist economies, they will be found facing on, on completely different platforms during periods of trial and crisis. In the case of trade and industry facing a recession in a capitalist economy, the slowdown in production because of dwindling demand can push them to the brink of liquidation. The interest they have to pay to service their debts will go on mounting relentlessly 
until it will no longer be possible for such companies to stay afloat. On the other hand, if an economy is run on Islamic principles, a slowdown in business and trade opportunities will only send trade and industry into a state of hibernation. That is how nature ensures survival of the fittest at the time of extreme stresses and adversities. When the input of energy decreases, output has to be lowered lest energy should drop below the critical level necessary for survival. As there is no relentless pressure of debt servicing in an Islamic financial system, it can withstand far greater pressure and challenges during a recession. Prohibition of interest The Islamic economic system runs on the total absence of the interest factor, yet there is no historical nor current evidence to suggest that as a result of no interest, the demon of inflation went amok and set the prices spiraling up beyond control. In the contemporary times, we have a very interesting opportunity to draw comparisons with regard to the influence of interest rates or its absence on inflation. The government of China under Mao Zedong's era made many experiments with the economy. Some faltered, some produced excellent results. But during the entire reign of Mao Zedong, Interest was not allowed to play any part, either domestically or internationally. Yet, throughout this period, there was no prominent increase in inflation. In fact, when ultimately the overall production level increased, prices began to register a fall. As compared to this, in the state of Israel, perhaps the world's most capitalist country, the rate of inflation has been amongst the highest recorded anywhere in the world, except, of course, in Latin American countries where the post-war exceptional phenomenon of inflation in Europe, particularly in Germany. But then, those, who were, not, those were not normal days. On things being equal, the role of interest in any economy cannot be described as anything other than inflationary. High interest rates in Britain the current hot debate in Great Britain regarding the pros and cons of high interest rates offers an interesting example for study. For a long time now, the conservative government has kept interest rates precariously high with the sole declared purpose to curb private consumption and thus suppress inflation. The economy is already squeaking and groaning under the stresses this policy has caused. Many a lesson can be drawn from this study. Among other things, this study presents a fit case of highly potent economic decisions being taken on the basis of a theory, which in itself is debatable. The notion that the higher the interest rate is raised, the more will inflation be reduced seems to be the only reason to justify the maintenance of interest rates at an unnatural high level for so long. In the case of our current study, of what is happening in Great Britain. The rate of interest has never been the real culprit in the inflationary trend. There must have been mismanagement in many areas of the economy and an overall faulty economic policy which resulted in the relative high inflation rate of the present time. The raising of interest rates has only served to distract the attention from the root causes to an easy scapegoat. 
This strategy may ensure a measure of success in combating inflation to begin with, but it has already set in motion, set in motion powerful factors, which would produce secondary effects. The country would be pushed to an unmanageable state of recession and unemployment would soar. It is impossible to believe that advice from leading economists, experienced financial planners, central bankers and other experts is not available to the think tank of the conservative government. There has to be some reason for this prolonged willful delay in lowering the high rate of interest on the hollow plea that it is essential for the survival of the national economy to push down the inflationary trend with the leverage of high interest rates. Could it be possible that the timing of lower interest rates is not politically suitable to the present government? Perhaps, if it is delayed until close to the next general elections, the immediate relief felt by all sections of society from the cut in interest rates could be turned to the political advantage of the Tories. If this is done too early on, the secondary effects to which I have already alluded may begin to manifest themselves and offset any gains from the temporary relief brought about by lower interest rates. Some of the factors which may unleash this undesirable phenomenon are as follows. 1. The high rate of interest has not only choked the buying power of the general public, but has also squeezed the jugular vein of industry. 2. It has certainly had, it has certainly had a large section of the British public in its quest for the basic necessities of life. Those who borrowed large sums of money for a roof over their heads had calculated carefully before taking on a mortgage. They squeezed their ability to repay the mortgage and had squeezed their daily budgets to meet repayments. Such people were already exercising restraint in unnecessary and imprudent expenditure. There was, in any case, little leeway to do so. This section of British society was certainly not responsible for inflationary trends. But ironically, this is the section punished most severely by the so-called anti-inflationary measure of the government purportedly for the benefit of the general public. Meanwhile, the value of their houses has begun to nosedive and they find themselves in an insoluble dilemma, unable to meet higher repayments and unable to find a buyer for their property. 3. Inflation is a complex phenomenon. It is not the purpose of this address to devote unnecessarily longer time to this subject, but for reasons which will become apparent after a while, I have to beg the audience indulgence. Among other things, the ball of inflation can be set rolling when excessive money in the hands of the buyer artificially raises demand while the supply of goods remains low. Too much money for too few goods. There is more to buy and less to be bought. But perhaps, in the case of the British economy, this situation did not prevail. The greater volume of money in circulation was supporting British industry to a large degree by increasing the consumption in the home market. Add to this the influence of tax cuts and moderate rates of exchange on the value of sterling in the international markets. This moderate exchange rate of sterling attracted overseas buyers to British manufactured goods to the advantage of British industry, which was already being generally helped by the expanding home market. 
the most logical outcome should have been a drop in the prices of manufactured goods. A rise in production should have absorbed fixed overheads leaving only marginal costs to be borne by ex-factory prices of such goods. Even a bigger profit margin should have left the manufacturers with sufficient cushion to reduce prices. The prolonged high interest rates have reversed this natural growth of the British economy with dire consequences for the future. Meanwhile, foreign markets, which slip out of their hands, will be difficult to regain. 4. The changes in Europe are transfusing more blood to the already robust economy of West Germany, or should one say Germany. The secondary negative effects enumerated earlier may augur ill for the British economy. The present government may unsuccessfully manipulate the th timing of the much-needed drop in interest rates, but the next government, if it is conservative, is going to inherit colossal problems from the erstwhile government of its own party. The point which emerges from all this is a very important lesson for policymakers all over the world. Interest as a tool for controlling national economy meddles with the very concept of a free market economy. No economy run on the philosophy of interest-related capital can genuinely be declared to be free when its government has all the power to raise or lower interest rates. The Islamic economic system provides no such measure of exploitation to the government. Other evils of interest Perhaps it will not be out of place to mention a few other aspects of interest. The interbank interest rate is only paid on wholesale deposits and not on savings account to the average depositor. Despite the compounding effect of interest, the return obtained on a small deposit is far below the true purchasing power of money. Although short-term rates fluctuate, in the long run, interest earned on deposits is below the inflation rate. On the other hand, a similar principle some invested in some business venture has potential for growth in real terms. In an interest-motivated society, owners of capital are always ready to lend money without investigating the ability of the borrower to repay. On the borrower side, there are few who seriously consider their repayment ability. Little do they know that borrowing from the loan sharks, the likes of Shylock, and prestigious finance houses and banks, is tantamount to borrowing from their own future earnings. It encourages the habit of living beyond one's resources. It results in overspending and an increasing inability to repay and honor one's pledges. Such societies give an unrealistic boost to production to meet consumer demand. This evil aspect of interest-run economies has to be further elaborated and illustrated. In a society where keeping up with the Joneses becomes an obsession, the obsession is largely abetted by advertisements of the latest models of this and that. An introduction is provided to the general public of the luxurious lifestyle of the rich by displaying the latest designs of sofas, luxurious chalets fitted with the most modern kitchen and bathroom appliances and gadgets. People with less means available to buy all that they want are willingly turned to false plastic money to fulfill their desires. Obviously, this means that they buy far more than their earnings. If this money was to be repaid even without interest, 
it would be tantamount to increasing one's buying capacity at present, at the cost of lowering the same in the future. If a man earns $1,000 per month and goes shopping for expensive articles with the help of bird money, say to the tune of $40,000, his ability to repay will be determined by his net savings per month. Let us suppose that he can barely make the ends meet at $600. This will leave him with net savings of $400 per month. He will have to live within that, uh, that tight budget for the next 100 months to repay the loan arising from his spending spree of $40,000 without interest. What, what he has, therefore, done is to borrow money from his future 100 months, i.e. 8 years and 4 months, to spend at the beginning of this period. The only advantage he has gained is to satiate his impatience and fulfill his desire instead of waiting for the next eight years or so. But if he has also to pay interest on his $40,000 borrowing, his financial position will be far worse than the one discussed in the previous example. At an average of, say, 14%, his total loan from his own future earnings would work out to be far greater than the actual money he borrowed. This will lower his ability to repay and lengthen the period of repayments to a considerable degree. Such a person will have to suffer patiently for some 20 years or so as a punishment for his impatience, making monthly repayments of about $500, i.e. a total of about $120,000 to repay the loan with compound interest. The loss is most certainly of the borrower and not of the lender. The lender is part of a very powerful system of exploitation, which guarantees, after allowance for inflation and loan loss, that the lender ends up with more money in his pocket. With inflation, the situation of the borrower in question will further worsen. His buying power will continue to decrease so that if it was difficult to live within $600, it will be impossible to cope with the same as time goes by. There are but a few who are fortunate enough to receive annual increments equal to the rate of inflation. To further aggravate the situation, in a society where people become more pleasure-seeking, it is impossible for them to wait for a long period of sheer austerity imposed on them by themselves after a few moments of reckless spending. More money is borrowed with greater recklessness and the expenditure is increased far beyond the means of income. In fact, decades of one's future earnings with ever-increasing debt servicing and concomitant problems are pledged to the lending banks and financial institutions. As a whole, such economies are inevitably heading for a major crisis. You cannot limitlessly pledge your future to the present before reaching the precipice of financial crisis arising from irresponsible spending, which then raises the rate of inflation. To combat inflation by raising interest rates in the hope of making less money available for expenditure is bound to trigger a chain of events culminating in economic recession. It is bad enough at the national level, but when the same factors create a recession in most countries of the world, a global recession looms large on mankind. Such global recessions pave the way for global wars and gigantic catastrophes. Bankruptcies and liquidations begin to increase. Trade and commerce enters into the doldrums. 
the underlying unemployment rate begins to creep up. Real estate businesses start to collapse. The resultant overall frustration in every area aids and abets homelessness, deprivation, fraud, and crime. If this happens, it should not surprise anyone, least of all the stout champions of capitalism. In the capitalist economy, the situation is not limited to private individuals being financed beyond their means to repay. In fact, the future of the entire industry is jeopardized at the cost of temporary gains. To begin with, of course, the industry of the country benefits to a great degree. This helps in lowering the price of homemade goods. The transfer of money to an individual not only boosts his buying power, but also has an impact on the productivity of the national industry. An increase in demand is followed by more production, and with rising production, lower costs are achieved. It gives the national industry a competitive edge in international markets. All seems silvery and rosy. Then comes the hangover. When, because of impatience and excessive spending beyond its means, the society as a whole is deeply indebted to the banks, the buying power of the entire society gradually comes to the end of its tether. Such industry has no alternative but to seek larger foreign markets to stay afloat and competitive. The smaller the country's economic base, the sooner it reaches the end of the blind alley. The larger the economic base, the longer will the period of ultimate realization of the impending crisis. Let us turn to the USA to see how things may work there. Without doubt, it is a country with the largest home market to support its industry, so much so that some economists believe that even if America is cut off from the international community, the broad base of the home market would guarantee the survival of its industry. But such economists do not take account of other related factors. If you apply, for instance, the case discussed earlier to the America scenario, you will certainly begin to see that there can be no logical conclusion other than the one drawn earlier. It is only a question of time. With a huge budget deficit and trillions of dollars in outstanding debts, the USA as a whole has already overspent and the American public is under very heavy debt to its own future. The buying power of the nation as a whole is bound to slow down or, or lending houses will have to go bankrupt. It is only a question of size, but the inevitable laws of nature must operate and apply equally to all similar situations. In a hot summer, pools and ponds warm up quickly to the ambient situation, but it takes a bit longer for the lakes. Likewise, smaller seas get warmed up sooner than the larger ones, yet they all follow the same inevitable fate. It takes the Pacific Ocean so long to warm up that, by the time it reaches that stage, Winter is already set in most of the countries bordering on its gigantic mass of water. That is why the climate is more temperate than that of land bordering smaller oceans. Such also is the case of the oceans of the economy. The very philosophy of spending from borrowed money is basically so crooked that to expect straightforward honest results would be madness. Another important factor should also be brought to the focus of one's attention. When industry and the national economy reach choking point, poorer and less developed countries face ever-increasing danger of suffering from the fallout of the explosive situation of the developed and advanced countries. 
It begins with greater urgency by political leaders of the industrialized countries to sell more goods in the market, to save industry from slowing down and to maintain the standard of living of its people. The problems they face are twofold. 1. The people are accustomed to modern comforts and 2. For the sake of its own survival, industry continues to excite them with new inventions and devices which bring comfort and pleasure to their homes. No political government can survive the pressure of a public which continues to demand higher living standards. The economy must be kept afloat at whatever cost possible. Obviously, the third world countries have to be bled more than before for the maintenance of artificially high standards of life in the advanced countries. What about the new challenge of the reshaping economies of the USSR and Eastern Europe? And what about the growing need for foreign markets by the newly emerging capitalist states of the erstwhile communist world? Again, what about the havoc, which the Western media is already playing with the desires and ambitions of the poor and almost destitute common people of the socialist and third world countries? All these factors put together will certainly not change the face of the earth for the better. I stop at page 187.